Uh, good afternoon. Um, I'd like to welcome everyone in the room as well as those of you who are uh, joining us remotely. Um, it's my pleasure this afternoon to um, introduce Alyssa Ozan, who's a colleague who joined us last year um, as an, a new associate professor at the Dartmouth Institute for Health Policy and Clinical Practice and also as a member of the Cancer Control Program. Um, Alyssa uh, did her um, her education at Stanford, actually entirely at Stanford, uh, pursuing first a bachelor's in uh, biology, um, then a master's in engineering and economics, and then a PhD in management science and engineering uh, with a focus on decision analysis and decision sciences. Her postdoctoral work was at the University of California at San Francisco and also at MGH um, and Harvard, where she joined the faculty um, and was there until 2011 when she was uh, enticed to go back uh, across the country to UCSF. Um, and uh, I think you'll see that Alyssa is very uh, committed to uh, patient-centered use of uh, decision support tools. And um, her dissertation worked on designing a decision framework for breast cancer risk assessment and prevention. Um, her work has been funded by the Komen Foundation, the American Cancer Society, and the National Cancer Institute. And I should mention that while she was at UCSF, uh, she served as director of risk assessment and decision science for the University of California Athena Breast Health Network, um, which integrated clinical care and research across five different health systems in the Bay Area. Um, she'll be speaking with us today about identifying women at risk for breast cancer using patient-reported National Comprehensive Cancer Network checklist. And, um, there are several of you in the room I know who are involved in the effort that Nancy Morden is leading with the Dartmouth-Hitchcock um, <clears throat> knowledge map to make some sense out of uh, mammography screening guidelines. And I think this um, topic and Alyssa's <coughs> expertise is extremely useful to us in this context and we're very much looking forward to um, what we can learn from you and very fortunate to have you here as a collaborator. Um, but before I um, turn things over to you, Elissa, I must um, mention that you don't have any financial interests related to the topic you'll be discussing today, uh, that you don't have, intend to discuss off-label or investigational use of a product or of a device, and that you attest that you're not receiving direct payments from a commercial entity with respect to this activity. Um, at the end, those of you who will, will take questions and answers, and um, those of you uh, who are at a remote location will also be able to answer questions. So without further ado, let me turn it over to you. Thanks, Anna. Can, can you all hear me okay? Okay, great. So I appreciate the opportunity to speak today. And as Anna mentioned, I'll be talking about um, a study and uh, the idea of identifying women at risk for breast cancer. Um, using a patient-reported NCCN checklist or the National Comprehensive Cancer Network uh, checklist. So again, the disclosures. I did want to add just that this study was funded by the NCCN Foundation, but they did not have any input into the design or conduct of the, of the research. So just to begin with a bit of background, um, family history remains the most significant predictor of developing breast cancer. Women with an increased risk of, of, um, due to family history are recommended to have genetic counseling and possibly genetic testing. There are multiple risk assessment methods to identify women with hereditary breast cancer risk. 
However, collecting family history remains difficult in the clinical setting for a number of reasons. So a simple checklist to do this task may be a clinically feasible alternative. Um, and just to orient you in terms of who we're talking about here for women who are at risk for hereditary breast or ovarian cancer, this is a, a framework for risk management. And if we think about all of the individuals who are at risk, there will be people who have a family history and those who don't. And those who don't will go through what I call a standard risk assessment um, process, which includes something like the Gale model, the Tyre-Kruzik model, um, and we'll have specific um, tailored type of interventions um, through screening and treatment options. Whereas if you have a family history, um, it's quite a different process, or it really should be, and it really should look to see whether or not genetic counseling and testing are reasonable options for an individual. And if so, then the presence of a genetic mutation really drives a lot of what's happening with the individual. So even if you don't have a mutation, you still have, can have the standard risk assessment process, but we're really trying to look at who are these people who have a genetic mutation and have, can have really tailored um, care. Again, th that's who we're looking at today. Um, and to go back to what are the methods that we can identify these individuals, there are what are called um, risk assessment models. The most common are BRCAPRO and Bodicea. They require a significant amount of input of family history, almost equivalent to a pedigree. Um, the Klaus is another model, which is a little bit less intensive in terms of inputs. And then there are checklists or guidelines. So we have a guideline from the NCCN, and then the US Preventative um, Service Task Force recommend, they used to have one themselves in the most recent um, update. They don't have their own checklist or guidelines. They refer to others that are in the literature, and those are the bottom here. So there's some from um, different countries and some from, from this country too. So those are what our options are, the most common options. And here's um, a chart that's rather busy, but I'll try to help you look through it in terms of up here. Um, sorry, it's a little bit too light to hopefully you guys can read that. But these are the different checklists, and then it shows you which of them include the different inputs for risk factors. And so we start with the NCCN, and we have these inputs here. And if you see, all of them include um, the presence of female breast cancer in the family and some level of age at diagnosis. They also all include male breast cancer and ovarian cancer in the family. Some also include, but fewer include, age at diagnosis. And then there are other factors that some use and others don't. But those three are the main ones that are common across all of these different checklists. And you see, again, NCCN has the most number. And these are designed for, for slightly different purposes, some of them. Some of them are really calibrated to find a BRCA1 or 2 mutation, and those have specific um, characteristics with that present in a family. And then there are other mutations beyond the BRCA um, and other others, um, conditions that have an increased risk of breast cancer in addition to other cancers. And the NCCN is more geared towards those, and that's why they have a little bit more. And then I'll show you with these other cancers, they have more inputs into that model because they're aimed at slightly different things. But again, they're all very good at identifying um, individuals with a high risk of breast or ovarian cancer. And so there are a number of considerations, in, including what I just mentioned, in terms of what you might choose when you're trying to implement something. First and foremost is probably the performance characteristics, so how good is it? Um, and then there's a nice review um, that was put out this, path, this year, actually, looking and showing that 10 studies have reported on the um, performance characteristics. Sensitivity is what they most look at in the sense that minimizing false negatives is what you're trying to do for the most part. That is a judgment call on the institution in your clinical setting based on what resources you have. 
but you're really trying to say, here's a screener that we can use and feel confident we're not missing people at high risk. We may not choose to go on to test all of these individuals that are identified, but we like that umbrella to be rather large so that we aren't missing a subset of women who are at risk that we're not actually sending on for further um, workup and referrals. So the sensitivity for these checklists that are reported on are um, quite high um, for most of them. It does vary by setting. So if it's, if it's been designed to work in a cancer risk setting, it may not work as well in a general screening population. And then interestingly enough, the NCC guidelines have not been reported, and that's partly why we ended up going that route to take the opportunity to look further at this guideline. Um, and it's also why it's not recommended as one of the US preventive services guidelines. They recommend it only those that have um, studies reporting on their performance characteristics. Um, and then also a very important consideration when implementing is feasibility. So again, some of the risk assessment models like Broca Pro, it requires a software program, it requires a lot of input, it usually requires um, uh, a specialized um, individual like a genetic counselor or somewhat to, to some other trained individual to um, carry out the, the assessment and calculation, whereas some of the checklists, it's just a patient who's entering it. And so the patient burden or the willingness to complete it is an important um, issue in addition to the accuracy of the data collected. So it's, we consider it pretty good when it's done by a genetic counselor or other specialized <coughs> individual. We do have some serious questions as to whether self-report by a patient is going to be accurate and whether they do actually remember, they do correctly categorize, you know, for instance, ovarian as ovarian, or sometimes endometrial is, con is confused as ovarian, which is a huge um, difference, makes a huge difference in these, these assessment methods. Um, and then importantly, um, it's more important, the compatibility with electronic medical records that this is information that many clinicians across a patient's um, health experience need to know, and it's something that needs to be updated periodically every so often. How often is up to debate, but um, at least every couple of years because there could be more diagnoses within an individual, within the family, and so it needs to be accessible in order for it to be used in the lifetime of the patient. It really needs to be accessible in some manner compatible with electronic medical record. So just to, again, come back to what is the clinical flow that when we're implementing this, how will it and how might it manifest itself? So we have individuals who are unaffected who would come in through a mammography center or ideally even further upstream, people who may not even yet be thinking about mammography or decided not to do that for a little while and looking at primary care or OBGYN settings. There are many women who are self-referring to say, I have it in my family, I need this type of thing. More hap that happens more with affected women, um, but they are often identified through self-referral and through cancer centers, in addition also with some primary care settings. Ideally, they'd come together, they'd come to a point of care and have some type of um, family history screening. But it can also happen on the web, individually at home, outside of the medical center for, these, for some patients with some of these tools that are available online. Then, you know, the reason why this is so important to have this screening is that genetic counseling and genetic testing is expensive. And so we can't, we obviously can't go through counseling and testing for every individual. And so what the typical recommendations are for people who are considered to have a 10% chance or more of a BRCA mutation are recommended to go on to genetic testing. And from there, you have the opportunity to tailor the treatments whether, when you know whether they're positive or not. And so the goal is, we have two main goals in my view. One is to have informed decision-making, and ideally that will lead to improved patient outcomes. So you're making decisions, patients and providers are together coming together, making decisions 
on based, they're informed about the patient's risk and hopefully the patient's preferences about what the best alternatives there are for them that will lead to better outcomes for the patient in the long run. And then appropriate use of resources. So as Anna mentioned, a lot of my work is looking at decision analysis and cost-effective analysis and that it just isn't cost-effective to go through counseling and testing for each individual today. It could, it could with a new type of test or as these tests um, become cheaper, eventually become, we are looking, I think, in the next 10, 15 years or maybe more um, at, a, at a new kind of genetic type of research group. Today, this is what we're faced with. We don't have the resources to test everybody. So we need to test the right people. We don't want to miss people who are at risk, and we don't want to test people who are not going to benefit from the information on the test or are likely to benefit. And with that in mind, we have to remember what the patients come to the table with and what their social context is. And I think most people, is anybody not familiar with the, the Angelina Jolie situation in her personal life? So, so are the patients who come um, into the center. So there um, have been a couple of studies looking at what effect, just like the Katie Couric effect, effect with colon cancer. Um, and one clinic showed in, on, in Toronto showed that looking at the six months before and after her announcement, that referrals increased um, twofold, in, almost twofold, and genetic testing um, increased uh, more than twofold. However, their, by their definition of appropriate testing, it actually improved the number of individuals who were, had appropriate testing. Um, and then it also improved the number of mutations that were found in the testing group. So this is, this is the only study that showed this, this level of detail. There's some other studies that show the same thing of increase. Um, anecdotally, I know from UCSF and Mass General, I don't know, haven't heard yet about here, but that it also seems to be identified, this is bringing in the right people. So pe people who know they're at high risk and have been slow to do something and they're coming in, deciding to come in. That isn't necessarily the case, that's anecdotally, but you will definitely get the people who say, wait a minute, is this me too? I have one postmenopausal breast cancer in my family and they don't recognize that that's, that alone is not a sign of hereditary breast cancer. And then the studies haven't looked at upstream, what's happening in the primary care clinic? How many primary care physicians and clinicians are having a conversation with a patient saying, you know, that you, know, you aren't at risk and here's why, and here's a simple test that we can do for you, or here's something that I can refer you to. So I think these screeners come in before the specialized centers, where I think the specialized centers are experiencing a positive thing from the Angelina effect, whereas I wonder if it's actually adding more time and more burden to primary care and can some of these tools help that process? So that's what we're looking at. And it's important to remember what we're dealing with in terms of patient perception. And it's been long known that the perceived risk of death due to breast cancer is exaggerated in patients' mind compared to the actual risk due to breast cancer. So if you see breast cancer over here, that's, I think, supposed to be yellow. It's actually quite low compared to heart disease and cancers in general and stroke and whatnot. But there's 15% here who perceive breast cancer to be their worst. Um, risk the, mo the most um, the, the, the worst threat, so to speak. And actually, I've been you know doing this this work as Anna said for many years, and this this number has gone down drastically. So it used to be as high or higher than heart disease up here, and it's actually becoming much more in line with reality. But there still is a bump, and we need to be aware of that. That there will be some patients who are considered what some people call the worried well coming in who don't who don't have necessarily significant risk and won't benefit from these interventions. But again, we need to remember who we're looking at. And these the genetic mutation carriers are people and people with hereditary breast and ovarian cancer risk. They account for um, 
five to ten percent of the breast cancers um, and a number of ovarian cancers, and they have a very increased risk of both breast and ovarian cancer, in addition to some other cancers like prostate um, and pancreatic cancer. So these are people who need services. They need the testing. They need to, you know, they are people who are really going to benefit from interventions, and whether it's surveillance, whether it's risk reducing, like um, mastect uh, prophylactic mastectomy, et cetera. So we need to remember we're trying to identify the people who are going to benefit from these intensive options. And again, it really is allowing for personalized and, and individualized risk uh, medical management. So risk-reducing strategies, prophylactic mastectomy, oophorectomy, like I mentioned. And, and also, even if you've already been diagnosed with breast cancer, knowing whether you have a mutation that puts you at risk or whether you don't really can help um, uh, to individualize their, their care. And so look, if somebody's on the fence between mastectomy and lumpectomy, knowing whether they're at more or less risk could really help inform that. So, um, you, having a lumpectomy, learning that later that you have a mutation, and then a few years later having a recurrence, which may have been prevented if they had a mastectomy in the first place, isn't the best place to be in. You'd much rather let them decide, you have a mutation, you're at increased risk, do you want to go ahead with the mastectomy now? You may never need to deal with it again, but you might, and these are your risks that you're facing, let's figure out what's best for you. And that's really what we're trying to do here. <coughs> Um, there are many studies that show it helps alleviate uncertainty both ways. So people who come from a family history of, of breast cancer and a lot of early deaths and are very concerned, studies have shown that once they find out that they do have a mutation, their anxiety can decrease because they now feel empowered and have options and they, they, they are no longer necessarily in this holding zone and just being fearful of what may, um, may happen to them. They can take action through surveillance, through interventions and whatnot. And then obviously if people are found to not have a mutation when there's a known mutation in the family, then they aren't at risk and then more, their risk goes down at the general population. That obviously can alleviate anxiety. Um, and clearly there are benefits to family members. So if you find a mutation, you know, um, based on the pattern of inheritance, 50% um, likelihood in primary um, or first degree relatives and so on in, in terms of you can identify what likelihood you are to have a mutation once you know of, of a particular uh, mutation holder in the family. So lots of benefits to, to genetic testing. So this study was um, designed to look at the NCCN um, guidelines um, and see whether or not first we could develop a patient checklist that is derived from the NCCN guidelines. And I'll show you the guidelines in a minute for those of you who might not be familiar. Um, then we wanted to evaluate the feasibility of administering this checklist in a clinical setting. Then assess the accuracy of the patient-reported data on this checklist, and then, and then finally to evaluate the efficacy of using this checklist to identify these high-risk women, both in terms of is it um, effective in helping women go to these counseling appointments when recommended, because um, that's the first step, <laughs> and then also comparing it to other risk assessment methods. And today, um, I'll be discussing the first three. The fourth um, objective is still in progress. So the setting is UCSF. This is a study that was funded before I left UCSF and came here, and it was completed after I came. And we have um, both a study group in the Screening Mammography Center and also in the Breast Cancer Clinic at UCSF. The eligibility was 35 to 60 for screening, 35 to 65 for um, the cancer clinic. It's an English form, so we can only use English-speaking um, individuals. And then for the screening group, um, well, screening group, we had no prior breast or ovarian cancer as an eligibility requirement. And then for both groups, we didn't want them to have already been through genetic 
testing um, or counseling, and the only way we could get to that is at the UCSF record. Um, so we didn't. We wanted to look at people who are somewhat naive to this, pro hopefully naive to this process. So the um, the study was as follows: the eligible patients were approached in the waiting room. They were consented. They completed the checklist on their own with a, a study staff there um, with them to help if needed. Um, and then they completed a family history interview with um, the study staff. And then together they reviewed and corrected the NCCN checklist if needed. So this is the NCCN guideline, the published guideline from, from for breast and ovarian cancer. And it's designed, obviously, for clinicians. Um, and I, we developed a team of investigators that included a number of genetic counselors and other clinicians. Um, I think we had, we had surgeons and oncologists. We also had um, some patient advocates that helped us take this rather complicated, dense um, guideline, which tells you who is eligible for referral to genetic counseling and further workup for their family history, um, into a patient centered version, which doesn't come out very well in this. But we have some instructions at the top, you know, defining what we mean by breast cancer, defining what we, what the guidelines mean by breast cancer and the guidelines mean by um, close blood relatives, identifying that there's a glossary on the back or a term of um, uh, or definitions. And then the unaffected group had eight questions along with this table of other cancers. So this is list, you know, pancreatic, sarcoma, brain tumors, et cetera, that all of the NCCN guidelines, and then they're supposed to indicate whether they or other family members have this, those conditions. And then the same for unaffected. It's slightly different. If you already have breast cancer, you have a different set of risk factors that consider you to be high risk. Um, Ten questions and then a similar chart at the bottom. And then on the back, this is the, the glossary or the term so that if they weren't familiar with what a sarcoma was, they could turn it around and say, okay, that's what that is, and hopefully then accurately <laughs> fill out the checklist. Um, and then each one, we from each of these, we, we had an algorithm based, again, on the NCCN guidelines directly as to what was considered high risk. And when I mean high, high when I say high risk, it means people who were thought to have high enough risk to warrant a visit with a genetic counselor or some sort of genetic specialist who would be able to help them figure out whether testing was the right thing for them or not. And so in terms of the results, we had very good enrollment. We only had to approach 109 in the screening center and 105 in the breast care center to reach 100 patients at each, in each group. And in terms of the age, they were a bit under 50 um, in the screening group and or the unaffected group, and 55 for the affected group. They were they matched UCSF demographics pretty well, and they might have been a little bit higher educated in general, um, just because they were agreeing to participate in research. But um, they were predominantly college degree or higher and white, and some Ashkenazi Jewish. There was a large Asian population, which is common in the Bay Area. Um, and in terms of feasibility, one concern was if you saw, you know, it had eight questions on one, ten questions on the other in this complicated chart, would they really be able to do this? Would they be able to complete it? Would they be able to complete it in a timely manner? And they coincidentally had similar characteristics on both, less than two minutes on average to complete for both populations. Um, some took up to as many as six in one group and as little as 30 seconds. And you might say, is 30 seconds enough? Um, and I done it myself a number of times. And if you don't have family history, yeah, it's actually pretty easy. Um, there is concern if people are doing it too quickly, are they missing things and whatnot, and, and we'll get to that. 
about a third in each group needed help. And the help ranged everything from what is this? And the research assistant would say, turn over the form, and then they would read it, to trying to have an in-depth conversation. And, and the study staff was really um, coached to not answer anything of that wasn't on the form. Um, so they weren't giving additional information. They were just pointing out, if you, you know, if they didn't know where to check something, they would help them do that. So there's, this definitely isn't the real-world real population characteristics that might happen, and we, that's you know something we'll look at in the future. Um, but they were really coached to try to minimize their effort, and a lot of people needed help, but there was not any help substantially given. Um, and then in terms of how many questions were corrected by the patient interview, and in here we really are assuming the patient interview or uh, to be the truth. We you don't, we're not Sweden where there's a whole family history registry of every diagnosis is known for every family member and that, that birth, like you know that. We don't have that here, unfortunately. So the best we can do right now is look at what this interview says. And there are questions to the validity of that, but in this study, we're assuming that the interview response is the accurate um, answer. And then the self-report was corrected only um, in 23% of the patients in both groups, and it happens to fall. We checked it many times to make sure this wasn't an error, but it happened to be the same in each group. That very few um, had multiple errors, and about 70%, 17 of the patients had one error in each group. So what were the questions that people got wrong? And so again, the forms weren't exactly the same, so there's a lot of NAs here, but what this is, is this is a brief description of what the question was, and then how many people got it wrong. So these tables were confusing to both groups, more so in the unaffected group, which you might expect because they haven't had cancer themselves. Maybe they haven't gone through this type of thought process before, whereas some of the affected group might have. Um, the idea of having two breast primaries in the same person, so bilateral breast cancer, or whether you have two occurrences in the same breast was confusing to individuals in both groups. And then there's a question for individuals who've been affected already of whether there's breast and pancreatic, two or more in, um, people in the family with breast or pancreatic cancer, for whatever reason, that was confusing. I actually found that bullet on the guideline itself confusing, so I think that was just translated through. Um, and then the very first question for the unaffected group, two or more breast cancers on the mother's side, in order to understand mother's side, father's side, and how many were in each group, we had to ask those different questions. The questions on is it on your mother's side, is it your father's side? And I think the first question, people perhaps just got confused. But this is helpful to understand what's going on with the form, what are people getting wrong, um, and perhaps helping us to future drill down why. And then looking at the type of error. So there are a number of user errors that could happen on any type of self-report. They checked the wrong column. They just misread the form. Maybe they were going too fast. Um, and then the rest of the errors are things that are probably specific to this content. It was confused about the type or extent of cancer, so the bilateral issue was a real was a real confusing thing. And then the type, it was things like an individual might have had a family member who they thought died of lung cancer, but when probed further, it was actually started in the breast, or things that they weren't quite sure of. Was it, um, this is just the example I used earlier, but this didn't happen in the study, whether it was endometrial or ovarian, or they weren't sure whether melanoma was where that went, and those, there's just confusion of what what their individual had, and then upon conversation, they were able to actually say, no, actually it was this, and they were able to clear it up. This whole issue of close relative, um, or close blood relative, it's um, first, second, and third degree relatives is what the guidelines say, and we define that 
and we give examples of the entire thing. So in terms of your sisters, your daughters, you know, we go through the entire lineage for both male and female in the directions. But then when it came down to filling it out, the question asked a close blood relative, and there was confusion when they um, would when the interviewer asked them, so was it was it your uncle or was it your grandfather or your great grandfather or, or things like that? There was um, corrections in that area. And then very few people actually forgot about a, a diagnosis, which is a big concern with these. I think most people think that self-report, there's not a lot of probing. Um, will will there be will they forget about a diagnosis? <coughs> we do have to remember that both of these groups are already in a breast center of sorts, and that they've chosen to go through mammography or they've been diagnosed. So there's probably some selection bias here um, in these groups that they probably are less likely than the general population to forget about some diagnoses. But that's a hypothesis. And then what we want to know is really how many people were considered to be high risk. And these numbers um, show first who, based on the self-report in each group, were considered high risk. And then after the interview and the corrected responses, how many were considered to be high, high risk. So a third, over a third in the unaffected and quite a high number, over three quarters in the affected group were considered high risk. And let's, I'll take you down to show you the differences between the two groups. So, we see here that um, in red, we see good news. There were no women in self-report who were categorized as low, who were corrected to be high. So that's very good news that we're not, this did not miss individuals who were high risk and forgot a diagnosis, for instance. Um, there was only in this group one woman who was overestimated on self-report to be high and then corrected to be low after the, the family interview. So this, these numbers look great. Again, we have to recognize there's some selection bias based on the centers that we um, chose from. And the 35 you know, is, is concerning. And I think that's something that, not, not concerning, but it's a real question. Of, it's a balancing act in terms of how many individuals do you want to make sure you capture versus how many resources you're utilizing. And I've, I've done this type of work at um, Mass General. And at um, UCSF, and each, and, and with the Athena process, it's actually f the five um, UC, University of California Medical Centers. And so each institution has their own threshold, per se. And so if you say 35 is too many, we don't have the, the resources or the bandwidth to, to get 35% of the individuals um, into genetic counseling, then you, you can raise that threshold, and I'll show you one method that I, how you can do that. But then you are potentially missing people who have some of these risk factors, and they won't necessarily go through counseling. So it's a real balancing act in terms of where you put that threshold. Um, but we were actually very um, assured to know that you know, by self-report alone, we're not missing people. So the self-report isn't bringing in um, issues about missing people, again, in this population. And if we look at for the affected women, it's very similar. Again, we aren't missing anybody. <coughs> And there are a few more people who were originally categorized as high by self-report and, and corrected um, to the non-self-report or the interview to, to be low. But again, we have this very high number of 77% uh, to be considered high risk. Again, this is in individuals who have been diagnosed with cancer. Um, and so when you're in this setting, some centers that I've worked at, they have a genetic counselor on call who can come in for a five-minute conversation to verify some of this information before they send them off. And of those 77%, maybe half of them may say, no, actually, they're not necessarily the, the right candidates. Um, and using their expert judgment to, to refine this a little bit further. Um, and so it, isn't, it is a, a resource utilization, but it isn't necessarily the same as having 
you know, 77% of these women having half an hour to an hour long um, appointments with gym counselors. So if we look at what triggered, how, who, who is in that 35% and 75%? Why, are, you know, are they the right people? And again, this is where we come back to, this is somewhat of a, of a judgment call. Um, it's also somewhat, you know, we, this is the one um, checklist that isn't validated, looking at the sensitivity and whatnot. And so this is what we need to do with this form and look at the, the two most top triggers are two or more relatives on the same side with breast cancer, and this is the, in the unaffected group. So questions might be, well, are they postmenopausal, premenopausal, or what's the age of diagnosis? Um, that question doesn't ask that. Or breast cancer, along with those other cancer conditions, was so basically that table at the end, looking at sarcomas and brain tumors and whatnot. Those are getting a number, you know, 15% had those, but those are getting a very specialized group. Is that something that we want to focus on or or not? An early age of diagnosis, and I'll I'll come back to this um, in a little bit. But the early age of diagnosis, 12 percent had that. So is 45 the right cutoffs? It's not necessarily used by everybody um, as 45. Um, ovarian cancer is, by all models, suggests that that's the right risk factor. Ashkenazi Jewish heritage, in addition to breast or pancreatic cancer, um, bilateral, etc. So this just gives you an idea of who's who's being triggered and. And for the most part, I think the specialist would say, yeah, this is a good group. So it gets very difficult to say, where are you going to weed them out? But that's what we have to think about. And then if you look at the affected women, it's very similar. So we have, again, two or more relatives with breast or pancreatic. And then the combination of leukemia or lymphoma in the family, along with this individual who's already been diagnosed with breast cancer. So it's indicative of um, syndromes and whatnot, and then bilateral cancer, et cetera, so in early age onset. So there's definitely some overlap of ovarian and whatnot. And again, these checklists aren't, don't have to be the same, but this really helps us say, okay, who are the people that we're getting and, and what are they at risk for? And then again, back to this issue of age. So the one, for the most part, the guidelines don't leave a lot of interpretation, and that's what they're designed to do. They're there to say this is how, who you should identify um, as high risk. The age at onset for an individual affected woman, they actually say clinical studies, the, the verbiage is that, that clinical studies um, use between 40 and 50 as considered an early age of onset or, or younger. So clinically, it should be 50. So they're very conservative and say you should use 50, and that's what we did in this study. And you look in, in the group that we had, 30% fell in that gray zone between age 40 and 50. And so if, and we, we think that our number is rather high in terms of how many people it identified. So if you want to change that threshold um, from, actually, sorry, it's from 40 to 50, right? So if you make it less stringent, you add 12%. So this is 30% who fall in that age category, but only 12% of them, that was their only risk factor. So the rest of them had something else that made them high risk, and the age of diagnosis wasn't enough alone to trigger them, but only but 12% did have that as being the only only trigger. So here we've you know rerun the analysis to say well what happens? Well it goes down to 12%, so you only have 65% only have 65% who are recommended for genetic counseling, um, and you see that you increase to seven seven people who were originally categorized as high in self-report to low, and what that means is that they had an error that put them at high risk, and now that age wasn't also making them high risk, that error made a difference. So before it was four, now it's seven, it almost doubles. 
Um, and so it makes you realize, you know, does you have to look carefully at these numbers and there will be some differences on self-report. But it is very, again, assuring that it's going from high to low and not low to high, again, um, and that we are not missing the individuals. So in summary, we found that it really is feasible to translate the guidelines to a patient checklist. Um, it was successfully implemented in two clinical uh, settings. It was through a clinical study, um, but patients were very willing to um, agreeable to complete it, and it was very quick, and nobody... The, the, the five and nine individuals who did not participate were reasons because they didn't have enough time, they were adopted, things that, that weren't about necessarily the study. Um, Self-report did appear to be reliable in kept capturing women at high risk um, and, and minimized overestimation. So um, we didn't, some, some, you know, we could have seen very different numbers and we were very reassured to see the numbers that we did. Um, but this high percentage of women identified to be at high risk is a bit concerning um, in terms of resource utilization. Not that we're identifying the wrong group, but it really is a question of are these the right people and how do we identify who the right people are? And, and maybe that is the right people. And then how do we find the, the right resources? I mean, I haven't come across, you know, in, between Mass General, UCSF, and in here and all the other UCSF centers, these are good medical centers. And none of them has enough resources to meet that need. So it, it's a resource, not only is it the appropriate use, but how in the world do we have enough people to cover this need if that's the true need? So there's a lot of considerations here. So we have a lot of next steps that we're working on. Um, I think that we need to go back to those questions that were incorrect and say why were they incorrect. Um, to really try to refine them again with perhaps more patient um, advocates and focus groups. And then really importantly, assess the accuracy in primary care settings, and particularly non-breast cancer settings, and outside of a research study. So these are all individuals who've agreed to participate in research. Um, they're all there, already primed, thinking about breast cancer, and you know, chosen to screen, et cetera. So taking it one step beyond that, how do we identify those women um, who may be avoiding screenings because of bad experiences in their family and whatnot, and how do we engage them? And how do we make sure that they're, we need to assess their accuracy on self-report? There are, are theories and studies that show that women who uh, have a significant family history both avoid uh, mammography and engaging it, and also um, don't necessarily report accurately, whether it's um, a coping mechanism by forgetting or they're choosing not to engage. There's a lot of psychological research looking at that, but the end result is we need to assess whether their self-report is, you know, is accurate. Um, and in terms of efficacy, we need to look at what's the follow-through. So great, we've identified these people, but is this compelling to them to go on to go have um, a genetic counseling visit? And a lot goes into that. How, who tells them that information? How is it told? Um, and what type of clinician and whatnot. So um, we need to figure out whether or not, and we will be doing that. We'll be looking at these, these individuals a year from now to see who has gone through genetic counseling. And because it's a preventative issue, very few people feel that this is urgent. So if, you, if you're identified to be high risk, the window of looking to identify whether or not they've taken action is quite long. Um, and so, you know, the Angelina effect comes in and a lot of people go right then. But there's a study that just came out um, and medical decision making, looking at basically looking at how the, the lasting effect of the Angelina 
effect. And so they looked at Google usage, um, and it, I actually just got it this morning, so I didn't have a chance to look at it in depth. But they, I think they looked at Google usage to say how many people were searching Angelina and then how many people in that next couple of weeks were searching breast BRCA, breast cancer. And so there clearly was a big blip in Google, and it's come down. Um, so we need to understand, is it the same kind of thing with an assessment with the provider? You get this, you go to your mammography appointment, you get this, and then they don't follow through. And unless something like Angelina comes comes up, it may not, it may not um, rise to their attention. Unfortunately, that happens with a lot of preventative medicine. It's hard to get patients to engage. Um, and then we need to look at this to say, you know, what we ideally would love is to have, and I'm, we're working to identify, we do have some data sets, but we don't have all of the data inputs to be able to run all of these models on these individuals from today and have follow them through 20 years to say, well, okay, we're identifying those people who have developed cancer. Are we getting the right people? And, and what we are using, what we can use are these considered gold standards like BRCA Pro or Bodicea. Those are considered to be the best alternative. Um, and so we have some, we have plans to um, evaluate the NCCN compared to the other checklist and compared to the BRCA. We've just identified one data set that has all those inputs, but it's it's challenging task in breast cancer. I mean, it's it's good that the outcomes take a long time to to happen, but it makes the research difficult to be able to look at the long-term effects. And then we really need to d to drill down into this possible over-referral. I think that many people probably in this room would think that 77% um, being referred is <coughs> is an over-referral to genetic counseling. So again, that's a bit of um, a judgment call, but that definitely needs to be looked at further. And then there's lots of issues about implementation. So how to incorporate this into a clinical workflow and how do we get it upstream from mammography and um, the breast care clinic and, and importantly into the electronic medical record. And there's, as Anna mentioned, there's a lot going on here looking at risk assessment um, in relation to mammography recommendations. Um, and, uh, and the possibility of having, we did this on paper because initially, you know, it was a rather small um, study funded so we didn't have the funds to do any type of internet or tablet-based version. And so it was designed by paper because there are a number of, you know, again, coming from UCSF, they have electronic capture here. There's electronic capture through Prosper and other efforts. Um, and so there, but there are a number of clinics and a number of settings that don't have that. And so this was designed to work, actually be much more accessible and accessible to any clinic, no matter what they're doing. Um, and it can go from there to blossom into a, a more productive, or not more productive, but a conversation in genetic counseling that would include all of the electronic medical record. But if we got this in, you know, at, at the forefront, um, it could happen anywhere. And then if, it, if it's feasible to do, implement it in a tablet version. And I think it would be um, pretty easy to do that. We've had some conversations and done this with some other work that I've done. Um, but I think that is really the question is, that's the future moving forward in electronic medical records. So how can we do that here? Um, and that's next steps for us. So we have a lot of collaborators that I'd like to acknowledge, a lot of genetic counselors and other clinicians um, and the great research staff to get all of that enrollment um, and the funding resources. So we had the NCCN Foundation and also some funding from the Athena Network. So I'm happy to take any questions. Thank you, Melissa. Um, so we're, we are able to take some questions from, from afar or here, Chris? Um, 
have two questions. One is um, part of the inaccuracy was related to the third degree relatives, and, and so you know I wonder if, if including those more distant relatives is, is introducing error and whether it's really asking things. My other question is, um, this is all targeted to breast cancer, but um, you know, like you might think of a screener that's sort of more general that includes like predatory colon anxiety. Mm -hmm. I, I, I mean, these were breast clinics, so it makes sense, but you know, there might be room for other screeners. No, I think that's a really good question, and I, and and we in the conversations that we had with the genetic counselors, that's where they were all moving towards, and so and that's actually where the NCCN guideline. And I, I, I see there's some genetic counselors in the group that may want to speak to that um, in addition. But they are the NCCN guidelines are more inclusive than the others, um, and that is a very you know good question. There are questions about you know prostate and colon and pancreatic, and so. What are the other ones? If we want to do this in the primary care, how do we combine that with the other screeners so that you get a comprehensive? The risk there is you're already at 77% for the screening and 36%. Does that go up to 50%? And that may, you know, I'm not, I'm not judging that that is the wrong thing, but I know that you know, it depends on what shoes you're in. If you're in the genetic counseling shoe, you're saying, yeah, you want to get all those people. You want every opportunity to find the right people. If you're in, you know. In the different role of, you know, holding the purse strings, it's like, well, where, where are the funds for that? Where we don't, and not only that, but we don't have the genetic counselors to cover that need. <clears throat> so I'm happy to have those of you who have more um, input into that. But I think it's a real balancing act to figure out how do you get the people who are at most increased risk without overburdening the system. And I think that's, you know, another study to bring them all together. And again, you need the great data set for that to be able to look at all those risk factors together, which would be great to do down the road. Yeah. I uh, just want to relay an uh, experience we had that, that emphasizes it's all, it's all in the follow-up. <coughs> um, we did a similar uh, pilot trial with uh, a paper questionnaire, check-offs and so forth for patients coming for screening colonoscopy. Uh, and then they were reviewed to identify people who were quite appropriate, so not a certain, you know, uh, for referral for let's say Lynch syndrome. And we chose at that time to uh, um, engage the primary care doc and sort of send them letters with a copy mm -hmm. of the, consent, the, the questionnaire saying, this is this patient's appropriate for referral, this is how you do it, here's our formula. Hardly any update. It just went nowhere. Um, and when we've had success on the breast side, there's there have been it's lit flags that caused people to intervene that day with information and material for the person. But if you're counting on some vague follow-up by someone else some other time, uh, it seems to not really happen. And that's a that's a manpower problem also to have the people mm -hmm. on hand to to mm -hmm. um, pick it up and deal with it. Right. So, so my experience in the different institutions is that I think having buy-in from the entire team, the whole spectrum of providers, so who is it that's responsible for that follow-up call, and really understanding the process, everybody in, having input to the process, everybody buying in. And so at, in the UC system, they have a process where they implemented risk assessment <coughs> and then are following through. And they designed a particular role called a breast health specialist, who most of them across the sites are a genetic counselor or have some, one is an actual a physician, so they all have some training, and they were the ones who were responsible for calling that patient. So it wasn't just a, a sort of a scheduling type of phone call, it was 
a health provider phone call, calling them who had the expertise, they had the knowledge of what their information was, the knowledge of the system of how they got to that phone call, and then they had the knowledge of why it was important to that patient. They had the, the um, psychological type of training that the counselors go through to help um, do the sort of inter motivational interviewing type of, or, or different types of conversations that can be effective in that process. So I think each center has to figure out a way around that, but because that, that is a common problem. Uh, also two questions. You may have covered this, but what, what is a screening clinic? Oh, so mammography clinic. Oh. So a, a breast screening clinic. So people coming so in for their annual or biannual yeah, exam. And um, with, the, uh, with the availability of uh, such services as 23andMe, yeah. uh, are, are you envisioning some other sort of channel through which patients might show up saying, my 23andMe sure. report just popped up, and I have, you know, I'm, a, I'm an Ashkenazi Jew with a 8.2% increased risk of X. Sure. So I think that that's a challenge too to integrate these these types of um, assessment process, not only with other cancers but with other forms of risk assessment. So 23andMe, the FDA actually no longer allows them, but um, but that is there are a lot of SNP testing coming in, um, the other, so when I had the first chart at the beginning looking at, you know, women with a family history and women without, there are things like SNP testing that are being done, breast density, which I didn't mention. So there are a lot of things that come into the picture, which um, I think if you look at the risk associated with a BRCA type of mutation, they trump any of the SNP things and whatnot. So there is a, a challenge of communicating that to the patient. But what you're really trying to identify here are those people who have that really significant risk. The SNPs are, you know, the odds ratio are, are very low in comparison, and they do play a role. But I don't think they're really going to influence the decision making for an individual who's known to have DRC mutation. It's much more so in individuals who, um, who, who don't have that and are trying to, you know, maybe on the fence about tamoxifen or whatnot. I'm wondering if going back. A question. I'm wondering if including the third degree relatives may actually provide a level of tension to people doing the um, questionnaire because uh, I think between um, still occasionally largish families and families that are really spread out around the country, I don't know that everybody's going to feel that they really know what the medical history uh, is of people who are that far away from them in terms of, particularly if you do both going backwards and going forwards, uh, cousins, children, for example. That is true. And I think another an, another next, another follow-up study on this could be to say, once you do that genetic counseling visit and they have a conversation with the patient to help them understand how important it is for them to get those third degree relatives history and they spend a couple of weeks making those phone calls, trying to figure that out and come back and do the reassessment then that's where I think you have an opportunity to look at whether there was under-reporting um, and whether there would be significantly more, um, more uh, correction to the self-report. And so that, you know, that gets to your question. Sorry, I forgot that question here. I think the third-degree relatives for some of these families are incredibly important, um, but it does you know, add a burden and attention 
Um, so I think what we could do in this data set is, so we haven't yet looked at the don't knows. The enrollment ended recently, so we haven't looked at everything yet. And I think if we looked at the don't knows for some of these and, and flipped them to yes to see how that changed, then I think you know, that would inform us perhaps of maybe an upper limit of what we're missing. It would probably be an overestimate, but it might be helpful to look at that. And again, it goes back to there is, unfortunately, no right answer that we can get our hands on here with family history. We have to you know, do the best we can. And I absolutely advocate for those with specialized training, regional councils and whatnot, being the best at doing that. Um, but again, it's just a matter of identifying who's really going to benefit most from that resource, which is limited. Kind of related question. Uh, again, you're screening in a care setting, so you have, to some extent, the worried well that come forward to seek services. You're highlighting genetic risk, but is there a group who don't know their biological family, and you have to convey some message or reassurance to them? Yeah, so I think the clinicians um, typically consider them to be average risk. So if they're if they're adopted or just don't have that, that history, that it, it, there is no reason to think that they're at increased risk or not. Um, and so the best information is that they're considered to be at average risk. I mean, that, that's what I've seen people do. And it, it's suboptimal, but it's, there's not really anything better. This is a screening test to identify high-risk women for breast cancer, but what you talked about mostly was this kind of intermediate outcome, this BRCA, you know, the genetic risk and, and the resources that are required for genetic testing. So I was wondering um, why, you know, in a why you didn't kind of look at the test against BRCA testing. So identify, you know, a patient sample that have been BRCA tested and then look at how your questionnaire works, no, how well it works to identify those those people that we really ought to target for, for genetic testing. So that's exactly, I totally agree, and that's our one of our next steps. And we have just identified a data set that they just completed, actually, so, so entering paper copies into computerized form at UCSF for their group of people who've been tested. So we are now able to go back and look at that data set that's been tested to see whether or not, we, we think, we haven't quite figured out if we have all the matching variables, um, but we're working on that, because you're right. But it, but it really is a two-step process, because not all the people who are identified to be at high risk should go on to testing. It, the counseling really does help figure out what that risk is, and then importantly, what is the patient going to do with that risk? So if they were going to find out that they're positive and not act on it, and not make any different medical decisions on it if they were to find out that they're positive or not, then that test isn't changing their medical their medical path. It's a good question as to whether it should or not, and maybe getting the test would, would actually move them on. But um, if they are already, you know, if they have breast cancer and they're already looking at bilateral mastectomy for some reason, you know, getting the test right then Maybe they can wait until they're you know, down the road and think about what other notifications. So there's a lot going on to that genetic counseling visit to figure out if and when to test. Um, and that's a resource. And then of those people who are recommended to go and have this, um, the genetic counseling, then some, some of those go on to testing. So I think it is a, it's a two-step process. And you're right. At the end of the road, we want to identify those people who are most at risk 
And that is the best way. The data to do that are few and far between, unfortunately. So I wanted to ask you um, one question, bringing you back kind of to the screening population and this question that's being dealt with at DH. It seems that there's probably a movement towards risk-based screening guidelines. And when you're, you've done a really great job of describing the trade-off between testing and referral and kind of the resource constraints involved in doing that. And I wonder if you have any um, closing words about um, how to think about risk assessment kind of in the, in the screening context, where um, luxury of finding out the detailed pedigree might, might be difficult. Right, so, so I think that um, in the screening context, I think that doing both some level of assessment for this hereditary risk and the general risk using the, the Gale or Tyra type of models is important to do to be able to identify both of those groups. And at a very minimum, if you're not doing that, it's very important that, again, you know, as we mentioned, um, it, it's the whole clinical team process. So everybody on the team who is, who is dealing with that risk assessment and the results of that risk assessment needs to understand what the risk assessment is and the limitations to that. So if you're going to implement something in screening, you're right, you can't do a full pedigree. So if you're using Gale, you're only getting um, first-degree family history. So you're not getting any of your paternal side of the, the family history. And it's incredibly important that if you're only using Gale, that all the clinicians who look at that, that risk result who might say not at risk recognize it is only from you know, the, the first-degree family, um, first-degree relatives, and it is not comprehensive. So they can't be labeled low risk or average risk based on that alone. That really opens up a huge liability. Um, if you can couple the Gale with something like one of these short screeners, I think that might be a really ideal op um, option for a, a quick data entry, or relatively quick data entry in the screening center. And then you have um, the opportunity to get individuals who, early on in, in the presentation, who are both sides of that chart, the standard risk assessment through what we know about the Gale and the reproductive and hormonal type factors in addition to a, a quick family history. So for instance, all of, the, all of the screeners use male breast cancer in the family, ovarian um, cancer in the family, and age a diagnosis of breast cancer. So right there, you're looking at three great variables to use. And you can, we can drill down, and we'll have some of those risk assessments. We can drill down to some of those other screeners that are more um, or less complicated than CN, NCCN, which might be better for screening centers that have a lot going on already. Thank you. Well, join me in thanking all of you.